On this episode, we welcome Dr. Brian Donahue. You know, America's hospitals and uh, health systems have stepped up in a very heroic and amazing way, such an unprecedented way to meet the um, challenges of COVID-19. We decided to uh, invite back our favorite physician, um, Dr. Brian Donahue, to talk about these and other issues that hospitals and the whole medical community is faced with. Dr. Donahue, thank you for joining us. How, how has this impacted hospitals over the last um, year and a half? Well, Armstrong, uh, first, thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. And it's such an important question that you raise and is, is always the case with you. It's a completely original thought process. So here's what's happened. During the, the heyday, the thick days of the pandemic, people did not come to the hospital. Large university systems like the one that I work in saw a very precipitous fall over the early and middle parts of 2020 in things that we should see uh, no fall in. For example, people coming in with heart attacks. So the number of people, not just at our large center, but, but really across the country, with acute myocardial infarction fell, and it fell precipitously. And you might ask yourself, well, what happened to those patients? They were at home. They were having a heart attack. But what kept them out was fear of this thing. And so even though the flames were coming out the bedroom window, we didn't see the fire trucks rolling by, even though patients were uh, faced with gripping illness, they, managed, they, 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 they stiff-armed the idea of coming into the hospital. So people with heart attacks, people uh, with arterial hypertension, uh, even uh, people with, for example, strokes. So serious illness, illness that you couldn't miss if you tried, if you were, God forbid, in the midst of those throws, they stayed home just to provide a sense as to what level of angst and fear our public was gripped with. Not surprisingly, during that time, even large university medical centers, the center that I work in is the largest provider of cardiovascular services in the nation. And even our center was deeply, deeply in the red financially during those early months of COVID. Since that time, the, the people have been willing to, to some extent to start coming back in. I see it all the time. I'm speaking to you now from a very busy clinic and uh, people have been a little bit reticent even now in May to start re-engaging the healthcare system in a formal and robust way. On the other hand, there's goodness here. One of the things that has happened that would have happened over broad spans of time, Armstrong, but has happened with greater dispatch is the development of telemedicine. You and your media identity have used this telemedicine, if you will, to great advantage for years. We physicians have been less willing to do that. And, but this has become now um, something where basically 70% of all cardiology, I'm a heart doctor, so 70% of all cardiology visits can now safely and properly be undertaken uh, with, 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 uh, in a telemedicine format. So that means that we can see patients that are older, that are more ill, that can't take five buses to get here and see me. 
So that's all a good thing. Slowly over time, people are coming back now. So we've seen an increase in, for example, cancer checks. We've seen an increase in uh, people following up their diabetes and their high blood pressure. But make no mistake, there were lots of babies that got tossed from the sleigh in those early days of this, of this pandemic. And that's a cost in human welfare that, in my experience, is grossly understated. Um, what price, when you speak of the people who could not come in for the severity of their other illnesses, um, heart attacks, strokes, and other issues, what impact will that have on them in the long run? Well, we've never quite seen this before, Armstrong. So as you, you know, my career centerpiece is caring for p patients with ongoing uh, heart attacks. As it turns out, the average American with continuous chest pain, that means chest pain without remittance, it takes about six hours for that individual to put down what they're doing and decide this is really something that I need to have I need to have checked six hours. It takes the average physician, the average medical doctor in America, about three hours of continuous chest pain. So that means that we don't all, when we have these symptoms, they're not, they don't always identify themselves as readily as you might think in retrospect. But patients find their way in. Now, this is a completely new uh, experience. People, even in the setting of, of, of end of life, breathlessness, chest discomfort, hypotension, dropping their blood pressure. They didn't come in. So the advantage, for example, in my discipline of coming in to see things checked out is we oftentimes either see heart artery blockage before patients lose heart muscle, or even if they're having a heart attack, in our experience, we can open those arteries well in excess of 99% of the time, spare patients the loss of heart muscle, preserve their youth. So youth is the vigor and vitality of a normal, robust, contracting heart muscle. When that's lost, it's very difficult oftentimes to recoup that. And so the whole trick in this business, the way to get the best published outcomes year in and year out, is to, with whatever dispatch you can summon, get those patients in. And we've had, as, as you have in Washington, D.C., since we published papers that show how effective this early treatment is, by golly, these patients are coming, and they're coming by the, over the years in, in, you know, in droves. That stopped abruptly, beginning in about February of 2020, so just over a year ago. Let me, let me raise this. You know, um, hospitals require a positive margin to serve their communities. And it's interesting, the, the smaller hospitals that serve underserved communities, they're finding themselves in a financial um, tailspin, and yet the billion, bigger hospitals are just making millions and churning over millions of dollars in profits. All of that is true. All of that is true. None of it is new. So the rural hospitals and the smaller hospitals were struggling a little bit even before COVID. But not surprising, it's the weaker among us that get sick and die of pneumonia, not the more robust among us. By that, I mean this. When this pandemic came, large hospital systems were able to batten down the hatches, cut down on cath lab volume, operating room time, and basically control their margins. Um, 
smaller hospitals were not didn't have the financial latitude to do that. So a lot of those hospitals are staggering now, and some of them have been forced to close, several right here in, in the metropolitan area that I'm speaking with you from. And those hospitals will be gone. And think what that means. Think what that means for people who maybe are a little poorer or a little less mobile or a little bit older who really depended on those local health care pavilions. So the way that the healthcare system in America is responding to that, Armstrong, is to create amalgamations. So the large hospital providers are getting bigger and stronger. They're creating satellite opportunities in geographically remote areas. One of the things that the universities have done is to create online rounds with the physicians in the more remote areas. So people get together at seven in the morning go over the patients in the little baby hospital intensive care unit, bring to those patients the expertise of the university physicians. So kind of bringing the mountain to Mohammed, if you will. Having said that, it's still what you said, they're falling. You mentioned telemedicine. We really want to encourage people today to really return to the hospitals because the place and the environment is safe again um, for your procedures and for your checkups. Hallelujah. Indeed, that's true. And I'll tell you, as a physician who's been doing this for now more years than I can tell you, there is nothing like seeing your patients in the privacy of an exam room, dealing with her issues in a, in a professional and intimate fashion, listening to the heart, listening to the carotid arteries. So we're better at caring for things that we know more about. And there's no argument that we can simply do a better job in seeing patients face-to-face. -face. Having said that, these new ways of reaching out to people, these new telemedicine opportunities have taken themselves big steps forward, and they're going to take more Armstrong. So we're going to soon be developing a stethoscope that patients will be able to buy at one of their local big box stores. And the stethoscope will be uh, will be something that we can listen to their heart and their lungs uh, through. So we're going to find ways to do less but accomplish more. Having said that, go back to your physicians. See your healthcare providers. Stay with the people that you know and trust. Because most of the things that get us in the end are not things that we knew about. So the unseen hazard is the one that your physician provider is so much better at identifying in a face-to-face -face setting. How, how will this affect people today going to medical school? So it's, an, again, it's such a, a sapient question. So here's the interesting paradox. People are applying to medical school now. When I applied to medical school, there were 10,350 applicants to my medical school, which was the Georgetown University, for a class size of 250. I'll let that sink in. And those aren't just like law school, these are people who have taken their physics, their calculus, their organic, their inorganic chemistry, their biology. So they're a filtered group to begin with. So there were 10,300 of them for the class size of 205. Last year, uh, there were at the, at about closer to 15,000 of those applicants. So people, young people are applying to medical school. And if I may say so, I want your viewers to ask themselves, if, is this true? When you ask, who is it that you trust? Whose perspective do you pursue? And to whom are you willing to tell your secrets? 
physicians are always at the top end of that list. So the honor and sovereignty and dignity of being a physician is, is actually something that's been embellished over these, over these months. Having said that, it is a brutal passage. A wise man once said to me that the problem is not being a doctor, the problem is becoming a doctor. I spent 17 years from high school till the opening of my practice, 17 years to prepare for this venue. That's a long time. And there's lots of other opportunities for people to do. My son is now a medical student, a fourth year student uh, here at the, among the five most selective medical schools in the country. So I think that it's it, your viewers uh, will be interested to know that there is nothing on earth more arduous, more challenging, more difficult, more painstaking, and as you said, more expensive than becoming a physician. So on the one hand, young people are applying to medical school, and I'll tell you the honest truth, they appear to be far more qualified than even my colleagues were back in the 80s. So these young people are, are, are an extraordinary group of people. One of the things that's happened, Armstrong, that might interest you and your viewers is that the training after medical school, so after medical school, you go into some kind of residency, medicine, surgery, GYN, psychiatry. So those residencies have dried up a little bit. So now there's, <clears throat> there's competition to get into those residencies. So when I was coming through, the answer was nobody got into medical school, but if you got in, you were good. Now it's another iteration, another hurdle to, 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 uh, to pass over. So the kids are under greater stress now. They're more confident. There's more of them uh, uh, banging on the door to get in. Let me just uh, finish the thought by saying this to you. There is nothing on earth that is as deeply fulfilling and rewarding, and I think in keeping with uh, the maker's will, than to be a healthcare provider. So for those viewers, and there's so many of them now following Mr. Williams' shows on a regular basis, if you have that slight inclination, don't be dissuaded from it. This is the, the, the highest of callings. And a wise man once said, we choose the highest first. What about, how do you balance the role of pharmaceuticals and these hospitals to make sure that the hospitals don't compromise their integrity and their Hippocratic oath of medicine? So, you know, Armstrong, uh, big pharma is one of those turns of phrase that kind of just rolls off your tongue. Um, and as we think about our lives now in, this, in, the, in the spring of 2021, thank God for big pharma. And so they've risen to the occasion once again. Having said that, they also, like all the rest of us, are looking to make a living. And that's why the role of the physician is so central. That is to say, the physician is simply and purely the advocate for the patient. So this, that, that role, of when you go in to make your confession, the priest is just there for you. There's no other ambition or motive for that relationship except for the forgiveness of sins. And likewise, when you go to see your physician, that individual is just your advocate. So we do play that. It is true that, of course, all the pharmaceutical companies, they want to advance the mantle of their therapy and God bless them. But a physician is like a boat with a very deep keel. The tide rises, the tide falls, the wind 
puffs up, the wind dies down, but it stays on course. So the key thing is just to be a simple and pure advocate for the human being right in front of you. And that filter works really well to the patient's advantage over these many years. You know, we know that physicians have a godlike complex, but what has been the most humbling lesson for you during these last 14 months of COVID-19? So all of us, you, me, all of the millions of viewers know that this has been a very difficult time for the heart. We know that um, many of us have been uh, geographically isolated. Many of us have, have encountered poverty or near poverty. Many of us have experienced loss close at hand, and many of us have experienced personally illness and even life-threatening illness. So in terms of the titer of human angst, is it up, is it down, or about the same? It's way up. And that's why one of the things that is an advantage of this telemedicine is I get to reach out to people who are a long way away. For whatever reason, they're coming now even from the state of California. And so I can reach out to people and have an impact on them. And for some of the older people, some of the urban poor folks, some of the rural poor, it might be the only real honest furtive contact that matters to them in weeks or months. There is a certain sweetness to adversity. So as we gather for this show here today, in many ways, we're richer, we're more, more connected, we're fuller than we were uh, uh, previously. It's not to say that that makes it all worthwhile, it doesn't. But it is the case that our relationships now tend to be a little bit more well-hewn. Maybe we pay attention to things that we didn't pay attention to previously. Um, families that have weathered all this are a little bit tighter. Um, parents who have been isolated are just a little more breathless to see their children and grandchildren. So we are not left unaffected by this. And, I, and we are, after all, among us, talking to the survivors, talking to the people who are left as this fog finally begins to lift. So I think that for all of us, this will be a, a, a spring like no other. Maybe this is akin to uh, the moments after the Second World War. Maybe this is akin to the moments after the Spanish flu. But here we are together. We have occasion to give glory and thanks to God and to take a special acknowledgement of the people who populate our lives and to, uh, to, to ask ourselves, aren't we richer and fuller and happier in the context of those relationships? And so maybe we'll honor them just a little bit more fervently. Dr. Donahue, can you remind us again of your role at the University of Pittsburgh? Yes, yeah, so I have uh, here served as the uh, chief of cardiology at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Shadyside. I've served as the medical director of the cath lab. I've served as the chair of medicine at UPMC East, and I'm now trying to brand out into uh, other areas. So, for example, thinking a little bit more now about some natural therapy as opposed to Interventional therapy, though they are, they they both have their place, and uh, and, and looking to see uh, patients a little bit uh, in more remote aspects to bring them closer here into the fold. And Dr. Donahue, thank you so much for joining us. I'm Armstrong Williams. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode.